know if you'd consider yourself to be sort of a creature of habit, but there's certain things that I try to do each and every morning. And one of those is just a simple thing. I make it a point each morning to just check uh, the YouVersion Bible app. If you have that downloaded on your phone, you may know what I'm talking about and see what uh, the verse of the day is. And so the verse for this morning is Proverbs 19:21, and it says this, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose. It's the Lord's vision that prevails. Now, this word vision is a word that in kind of our modern context, we apply to maybe business in the kind of context of a company coming up with something they would buy, produce, or sell an exchange or a service or a good that they would do. They want to clarify the win. They want to sort of boil it down and say, what are we going to be about? And so in its purest sense, the word vision for us today means the act or power of anticipating that which will or may come to be. Uh, Those CEOs, those leaders of those companies who are deemed visionaries, they have this sort of vivid anticipation of what the future looks like. And so they spend a lot of time crafting a vision statement. Here are some from uh, businesses that we use on a regular basis throughout our year. The vision statement for Amazon to be the world's most customer-centric company. Anything you could want, you can log in, you can order, have it here in prime time, right? Two days, free two-day shipping. Used to be, I don't know if it still is. In these other larger cities, it's like you can have it same day. The customer is in charge. How about Walmart to become the worldwide leader of all retailing? You see that kind of happening, right? But you see even in that company, the way that that vision has sort of morphed a little bit and evolved, right? It's gone from we have sort of the bigger super centers down to the the neighborhood markets. If we're going to be the worldwide leader of all retailing, we've got to get back to the hometowns, right? How about Disney? Anybody gone to Disney recently? I don't know if you know this or not, but their vision is simply this, to make people happy. It's the happiest place on earth, they say, right? But I see all these moms and dads with young kids, and they don't look all that happy sometimes there. I think they're creating an environment of happiness, but when, uh, you know, young Sally or, or, or young Jimmy is out of sorts because he's just gone way beyond what he can really stand physically, it's kind of like, hey, we're done now. We've pushed through the wall, and maybe we need a nap. What about Netflix? These next two I want to share are some that maybe came to be more on the rise during the pandemic, right? The lockdown when we quarantined, remain at home. Netflix says helping content creators around the world find a global audience. So to take somebody who can produce something of movie quality and get it into the homes of as many people as possible around the world. Maybe you were a part of this type. I know I was. When we needed that connection somehow, some way, we did Zoom, right? You know what Zoom's vision statement is? Video communications empowering people to accomplish more. And so each one of these companies and so many more, they have a vision, a vivid understanding and anticipation of an imaginative future with an insight or a foresight that says, I want to be on the forefront of that. 
And so we want to look this morning, and if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn over to Nehemiah chapter 2, and we want to see where Nehemiah began to grasp a vision. Because here's the thing, Nehemiah had a vision, and his vision was to do something great that would be uplifting and reassuring to the people of God. And you know what? We as a church, we as Calvary, we have a vision as well. And our vision is to reach people with the gospel, leading them to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's our vision. And so we're going to see how this vision that Nehemiah had to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem really gave them some reassurance. It was sort of a spiritual shot in the arm, if you will, for them, and how he went about that. Looking in the second chapter, if you've been with us up until this point, you know, sort of the big idea for this series is this. After disobedience, defeat, destruction, and deportation, Nehemiah had a burden. He had a longing, a passion to do something lasting. He had a desire to leave things better than he found them. And with that in mind, let's go over to Nehemiah chapter 2 and let's start in verse 11 and see what is here. It says, after I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, there's a significance all throughout Scripture. We're going to see it in just a minute of this idea of three days. I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding, and I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. I, I wanted to gain that vision. I wanted to see. Sometimes getting a vision means I need to see the need, right? And the need for us here as a church is to get ready to position ourselves for greater reach into the community for those that are yet coming into our church. And so he inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down, verse 13 says, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And I went out to the fountain gate in the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by the way of the valley, and I inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. He didn't really tell anyone who had returned from that captivity back to Jerusalem what God had put on his heart yet. And so I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned down. He's crafting and forming the need for them. And then he issues the vision or the charge. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. Remember, I told you the very first week we started this series that the, the broken down walls were a picture. They were a descriptive image of the spiritually broken lives of God's people. And so they were in disobedience and disgrace, but God in his mercy, after they had been captured, and taken away, allowed them to return and to have a new moment with him. Something we'll see in the weeks to come where they gathered and they corporately worshiped, just like we're doing right now. 
And I told them, verse 18, how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. And they said, let's start rebuilding. And they were encouraged to do this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab came and heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply. The God of heaven is the one who will grant us success. Words that we need to remember. The God of heaven is the one who's going to grant us success now and in the future. And then he says, we his servants will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. And so last week we looked at faith part two and we said faith is often born out of brokenness. The broken down walls. Faith requires a confession. He said, God, you are the one who keeps your covenant promise. Faith reminds us of God's true character. You're the gracious God who blesses those who obey you. But then that last point was faith gives way to action. At some point in time, you gotta act. You got to take a step. You got to get involved. You got to start doing. And so now he's begun to start the action steps of doing what needs to be done by inspecting it for himself and getting a vision. And so the church, just like Nehemiah wanted to leave a lasting impression, the church is designed to leave a lasting impression. The question for you and me is, what will ours be? What will our lasting impression be? And so this morning, I want to give you these three requests in a prayer of vision. Three requests that we can bring before God seeking his vision for us as a church. And the first one is this. God, give us your perspective. Give us your perspective. Help us to see things the way that you see them. So crucial in this day and time that we would see things through a lens like God sees. We've talked about God operating in a different vein than we do. We see things kind of limited, right? We see things in the here and now, in the confines of time and space. God is outside of that because he is eternal. He sees things spiritually. But look again at verses 11 and 12. After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night. Think about that for a second. Is it really all that easy to see things at night? Maybe he did that because he didn't want to draw a lot of attention to himself. But he got up at night and took a few men with him and I didn't tell anyone what God had laid on my heart to, ju- to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I simply, if we were to kind of just, without adding anything, but get a little more context, I simply went out to say, God, give me a perspective. Give me a perspective. We use that, that designation for, for God in the truest sense of what we know it to be, right? God himself, because he's holy He's perfect, he's mighty. His perspective and his viewpoint is vastly different than ours. And so you know what? We need to ask him to help us see things his way. See things the way he sees them. And he sees them as each and every person that we come in contact with, that we cross paths with, as being a a person made in the image of God, in his likeness. 
and as one that he longs to be in a relationship with on a daily basis. And the only way for that to occur in our lives is through what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so the heart of God is to save every single person that would come to know him and long to be saved. The scripture tells us God is not slow in keeping his promise, but he's patient, not wishing that any would perish. You know, one of the greatest illustrations, I think, of this idea of God's perspective and seeing things the way he does from his viewpoint is a story over in the Old Testament, uh, the book of 2 Kings. And this is Elisha the prophet. And incidentally, the word vision, it shows up well over 100 times in Scripture, but it has roots in the idea of a God-sized revelation or a prophetic utterance. You may know that verse, uh, where there is no vision, the people perish, right? That's, that's one translation of Proverbs 29, 18. But really and truly, if we were to break that down a little more true to form, it says this, where there's no revelation, where there's no prophetic utterance, no prophetic word from God's voice to the people, then the people run wild. And so we've got our prophetic voice right here, the word of God. And all throughout the Old Testament, God had prophets. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, the prophet was Elisha. And as you well know, the children of Israel often were subject to foreign enemies. And this particular passage is no different. The foreign enemy was the king of Aram. That's, that's modern day Syria. But I want you to hear how Elisha handles this situation. It says in verse 8, when the king of Aram was waging war against Israel, he conferred with his servants. My camp will be at such and such a place. So home base, central command for the Syrian king is going to be over here. And Elisha overheard that. It says, but the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, be careful passing by this place, for the Arameans are going down there. And consequently, the king of Israel sent word to the place the man of God had told him about, and the man of God repeatedly warned the king so the king would be on his guard. He'd be protected. And this kind of frustrated the king of Aram. It says in verse, eight, uh, verse 11, the king of Aram was enraged because of this matter and he called his servants and demanded them, tell me, which one of us is for the king of Israel? Which one of you is leaking the story of where we're gonna be? This guy knows my every move. And one of his servants said, no one, my Lord, it's Elisha the prophet in Israel. He tells the king every word, even the words you speak in Israel your bedroom. You see, without the prophetic utterance, the people would be overrun. And so the king said, go and see where he is so I can send men to capture him. And when he was told Elisha is in Dothan, he sent horses, chariots, and a massive army there, and they went by night and they surrounded the city of Dothan. And here's where our limited perspective maybe hinders us from seeing God's mighty power. And when the servant of the man of God got up early and went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. He saw the king of Aram's army all around every side, pinning them in. And so he asked Elisha, oh my master, what are we to do? And Elisha said, don't be afraid for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. You can't see it servant. You're limited in your perspective, but those who are with us far outnumber those who are with them. And then Elisha, verse 17, prayed 
And he prayed, God, give us your perspective. Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. And so the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked around and saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, surrounding him. It's often a matter of our perspective. We need to pray as we seek the vision of God for what he wants to do across the street for us. We need to have that same yearning to pray, God, give us your perspective. Many different vision passages show up in Scripture. One of those that really starts the birth of the early church is there in Acts chapter 2. And and Peter in that moment as he's preaching and everybody's wondering what's going on, the Holy Spirit is coming down on the day of Pentecost and all these different languages are being spoken so that people are being saved. He says, oh, this is exactly what the prophet Joel said. In the, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. And, and, and the young men, they're going to see visions, visions of God doing what he wants to do. They're going to gain God's perspective. The old men... And incidentally, I'm somewhere in between that right now, middle age, headed more to old than young. But they're going to dream dreams. Listen, we've got a wide variety of ages on our Building Next Steps committee, and all of them have a dream and a vision, a dream and a vision, a longing to see God do something lasting beyond themselves. We need a perspective just like God gave a perspective to Nehemiah when he surveyed the situation and the broken down walls, and just like he gave a perspective to Elijah and his servants, and he said, look, around you is surrounding far more of God's protective hand than the enemy. God, give us a perspective. It says Nehemiah spent his time surveying the situation in secret without public knowledge. Isn't that really what Jesus told us to do in that mountainside sermon? Didn't he say, do not go out and give in public? Do not pray out in the street corner to be seen by men, but go into your closet and in the secret place come before me. And and when you do, know this, the the Lord who sees in secret is going to reward you accordingly. We want to ask God to give us his perspective. But second to that, we want to say, Father, Guide us with your plan. Look at verse 18 for just a second. Chapter 2 and verse 18. And it says, I told them how the gracious hand of God had been on me. He had been guiding him up until this point, right? He heard from a family member the dire straits of the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. He's in that position, second in line, one degree away, one heartbeat away from King Artaxerxes as the cupbearer. And he goes into the king's presence and requests the ability to go home and to do something great for his hometown people. And so he's relaying all this. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. Father, guide us with your plan is the next step for us in this exercise of praying for a vision of God-sized impact. I use the word father here because just like God means perfect, holy, and mighty, the one who can give us that perspective, uh, father is God's designation and his guidance where he is gracious, He is merciful, and he is good. 
And so as believers, we know God to be our heavenly father. And because he is our father, listen, we can ask him for guidance. We can ask him to show us his plan. Now we have to understand this. He's going to reveal elements of that plan in his perfect timing, according to his perfect will, right? I mean, we're going to see what we need to see as we need to see it. But we can continue to pray, guide us with your plan. When Nehemiah told the people that God was with them, you know what? It boosted their morale. We're going to see that in just a minute. It gave them an encouragement, none like they had really ever had up until this point. They were reassured. They were ready to go. They were on board with what Nehemiah wanted to accomplish. You know, there's something truly encouraging when we know that God is with us. And part of the way that we know God's with us is something that we'll talk about as this series continues, and that is the unity found within this body, the unity of the Holy Spirit amongst us. You know, we've taken three decision-making votes already amongst our people. And each and every time it's been unanimous, 100%, to take the next step and the next step and the next step. And that's no testimony or tribute to me. That's a tribute to God working in our midst. But many of you have marveled about that. That listen, it's, it's, it's hard for human beings to agree on much of anything. When we just have kind of an either or outcome, right? Will LSU win or lose? Well, that's not a good example. We can agree on that. They're going to lose. <laughs> but when it's just one or the other, right? Just two choices, we have a hard time agreeing, right? And yet here we are time and again saying yes we believe this is what God has called us to do. Yes, this is the step we need to take. Yes, this is the decision that is before us. The unity that God has when he binds us together to take on a mission and to begin to do something. And we say, Father, guide us with your plan. The only way for us to gain the knowledge of knowing that he is for us and understanding that he wants to impart to us is to ask for his guidance time and again. God leads them from out front. You see, God is kind of that still, small voice, just like Jesus referred to himself in John chapter 10 as the good shepherd, right? The shepherd is out front. And so it's that still, small voice that when we eliminate the distractions, when we drop all the noise and we really tune in in our spirits, we can hear that voice and we can follow it. God is never going to come from behind you or me and push us to the destination. He's going to be out front and he's going to lead with a still, small voice rather than pushing us from behind. He is a gentle, guiding father, not a forceful ruler. And so God, give us your perspective. Father, guide us with your plan. And the final phrase of a request to get a God-sized vision for what he wants to accomplish for us is this. Lord, lead us in your power. Look at the second half of verse 18. Remarkable words here. It says, they said, let's start rebuilding. And they were encouraged to do this good work. In your translation, it may say something a little different than that. It may say, and they put their hands to the work. It may even say this, and this is why I realize the, the final step we need is God, lead us, or Lord, lead us in your power. As the one who is sovereign, as the one who is in control, the word Lord comes to mind. Lead us in your power. And in some translations, it actually says it this way, and they strengthened their hands 
for this good work. What does that mean? It means they got started. They strengthened their hands to get involved in what God was doing through Nehemiah as the leader to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And so the end of verse 18 gives us some significant insight into the people's approach and Nehemiah's leadership. He came after inspection and cast the vision that now's the time to rebuild the walls, to shore up the gates, to make the foundation and the fortified perimeter of Jerusalem what it once was and what it used to be for a a lasting impression. And, And then they had a response to that. Their approach was, let's strengthen our hands and let's go to work together. And so it says right there, they were encouraged to do this. And their encouragement was because God had shown them, God had guided them back, and he had revealed what he wanted to do in and through them. We will see all throughout this journey that there was opposition. And listen, we may face some. I don't know. There'll be some hurdles. I don't know that there'll be opposition literally of another human being, but it could be that, you know, there's a snag in materials. I mean, we've all, if you've built anything in the last two years, you've seen some of that. There could be some hurdles we have to overcome. But what, what we'll see is that in that particular day and time, they had the tool in one hand, and the sword in the other. That way they could do the work, but they could also defend off the enemy. They were mentioned there a little bit at the end. Sanballat, Tobiah, the enemies of God and his mission had shown up and trying to thwart what the people wanted to do. But God, as the sovereign ruler over everything, he gave them the strength that they need. I always like 2 Peter 1. Verses two and three, it says this, his divine power has given us everything we need in life. Everything we need in life comes from the power of God in our midst. Don't ever forget that. Let's also remember we have to rely on the same power to lead us as we carry out this project. Now listen, we won't need a tool in one hand and a sword in the other. But I'll tell you what we will need. We'll need a prayer in one part and the sword of the Spirit in the other. We'll need a prayer asking for God's guidance. We'll need a prayer asking for God's perspective, for his leadership, for his power. And we'll need the word of God, which is our sword, our only offensive weapon, to continue to carry out the task that he's given us. And so his leading is always perfect timing, and his leading will always give way to results. What does it say right here in verse 20? When the opposition came, Nehemiah said, I gave them this reply. The God of heaven is the one who will grant us success and we, his servants, will start building. 